Rockabye baby, daddy's awake. When he comes home, hard cider he'll swig. When he has swug, he'll fall in a snoo. And down will come Tyler and Tippy Canoe. I find that the goods and evils are fairly equally distributed throughout the world. Great riches are disappearing, the number of small fortunes is increasing, desires and pleasures are proliferating, extraordinary prosperity no longer exists, nor does irredemitable misery. Ambition is the universal sentiment, but vast ambitions are rare. Each individual is isolated and weak. Society is agile, far-sighted, and strong. Private individuals do small things, while the state's undertakings are immense. Souls are not energetic, but mores are mild, and legislation is humane. Although heroic devotion to other lofty, spectacular, and pure virtues are seldom encountered, habits are orderly, violence is rare, and cruelty is almost unknown. Men are beginning to live longer, and their property is more secure. Life is not stylish, but it's quite comfortable and peaceful. There are very few exquisite pleasures and very few crude ones, but there is little politeness in manners and little brutality in tastes. One meets scarcely any man who are very learned or populations that are very ignorant. Genius is becoming rare and enlightenment more commonplace. All right, uh, welcome to the American Writers uh, podcast. Um, I'm going to talk today about the conclusion, the ending, the final part of volume two of democracy in america by alexis de tocqueville uh volume two i don't think i mentioned this before volume two came out in 1840 volume one came out in 1835 but they they're 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 meant to be a united work even though they came out a little bit separate and everyone reads them together now um part four of volume two uh does a couple things one is it it kind of thinks about the growing expansion of democracy in Europe and what that's going to mean. And it kind of applies what we learned about America to a broader global context more than more consciously than other parts of the book do. Another thing it does is it kind of goes back to politics. So he starts with a statement about equality of conditions. Then he goes into American political systems and governance and how those institutions reinforce uh, American democracy. Then in volume book two, Volume two, he goes into sentiments, mores, intellectual aspects of democracy. And then at the end, he goes back to the politics. He kind of brings it all back to the political question. But he does it in a, in a much more conscious conversation with what's going on in Europe and the rise of democracy in Europe. So that's the main thing we get. Now, part four is actually quite short. I'm, I'm cheating with my 100 pages at a time model um, just so I can do this part by part. It's only about 40, 50 pages or so, um, you know, by far the shortest section of democracy in America. And it really does serve as, as a conclusion. I, I think you could actually skip to chapter eight of this and just read the general conclusion. You're not going to miss that much in the book, but there's a few fascinating things in the other seven chapters that precede that, that conclusion. So basically we have some, these are kind of Tocqueville's final thoughts about American democracy and how it applies to to uh, the global trends towards democracy. All right, part four is actually the formal name of part four is called uh, a volume two. Part, uh, part four, volume two is on the influences that democratic ideas and sentiments exert on political society. And in a little introduction, he actually says like, I'm gonna be going back to politics. I'm gonna be retracing my steps. So sorry for that. Um, but I do think there's a contribution this section um, makes. 
Um, chapter one is called Equality Naturally Gives Men a Taste for, for Free Institutions. Um, now, this we've already seen, right? We've already, this is actually a big part of, of, of volume one, is how you go from equality of conditions to, to free institutions, right? Uh, you know, whether they're associations or newspapers or, or, or governance, you know, it's just, they, they kind of go together. Um, he does see a danger in inequality in creating potentially unfree institutions. And a lot of the book is this tension between like centralization and participation. And, and from like a European point of view, the idea of more power in the central government may seem as, as almost anti-democratic, right? Because that's because you have monarchy or aristocracy in America where you have quality and quality of conditions and, and more liberties. That centralization is actually the way that democracy actually functions, right? So what he, I think what he does in this, and this chapter is actually only one page. It, it's very, very short. Um, but he's arguing here that what we're not going to get is anarchy. So he, anyone who thinks that, that equality is going to lead to anarchy is wrong in Tocqueville's view. Now, this is part of a tension, though, that, you know, independence, equality, and, and individual independence, and people having those, I mean, that's kind of what equality conditions means. Everyone kind of has the means to survive themselves. This could lead to people branching off, right? But... You know, the other way it can, can spread to is, is what he calls uh, um, servitude. And this is the problem of tyranny of the majority. This is the problem of, of centralized power and all that. But he, he thinks both of these are kind of mitigated. Both these extremes are mitigated by the tendency of democracy to embrace uh, free institutions. And he just, it's kind of an observation he makes. It's not really here demonstrated, but except all the material he's already put out in the book in all the previous chapters, that there seems to be an association with, with free association, free institutions, including government, but also very social institutions um, and, and that equality of conditions. And this is the thing he really kind of thinks is the most important aspect of it and the, the greatest case for, for democracy. Um, so chapter two kind of builds off this a little bit, um, and it's called Why the Ideals of Democratic People About Government Naturally Favor the Concentration of Power. Uh, this was, uh, you know, again, something he's talked about before throughout the book. Um, now, really at the heart of this matter is when free people create governments, they want those governments to, to do what they want them to do, right? And this often does create kind of a centralizing, centralization of, of power, especially when you compare it to aristocratic societies like, like before Louis XIV, right? Where you had power in the nobility and the church and some in the monarchy and various social institutions. And this made it very difficult for the state to do very much because there are these competing forces, right? That's why uh, we study, when we study Western Civ or, or world history, we study absolutism as a kind of effort by the king to weaken these competing power centers, right? In democracy, you don't have that. You have basically the free institutions of government being the conduit by which decision-making is made, and that, that does concentrate it, right? That, that concentrates power. And he does think this is a danger if the pendulum swings too far that to kind of recklessness and, and kind of mob rule. So anyway, the argument here is essentially there's no limit to the power of the people, uh, and there's a general orientation in democracies towards society, not to individuals, not like the kings, right? And since government represents society, it, and, that, and there's really no limit to the power of the people to make decisions for themselves and implement them, that does create you know, a government that does more, right? And th this is, I think, a key point that often gets maybe 
not fully understood about democracies, especially among some people maybe on the right who say like the you know the government should do less or Jefferson's old thing you know the government that governs best governs least, right? Which is all fine and dandy in kind of a Republican mindset or even an aristocratic mindset if you're rebelling against a monarchy for doing things passing taxes or whatever your response may be to create a government where it's difficult to do things right and certainly the u.s constitution has that element in it uh, so there's all these prophylactics between centralization of power but by the time with democracy that's kind of moot and basically the the sovereignty is in the people generally and they're going to make decisions and they're going to get done one way or another if that's what people want them to do the the institutional Barriers aren't as strong, and that's Tocqueville's kind of concern, um, but also he thinks it's a real power of democracy. Uh, so you're going to get actually stronger states, more concentration of power in democracies than in those old monarchies and aristocracies, right, where maybe the power is more diffused uh, and or you have competing competition between society and the state. Right, where the, you know the king does something the people don't want. What can they do? They can only rebel, right? Maybe a no, nobleman will will rise up in rebellion or something, but there's kind of an antagonism between state and society, not in a democracy, ideally. That, that seems to be Tocqueville's view. That's, that's how I read it. Um, so that's also a quite short chapter. Um, here's here's what, a little of what he writes about this. Uh, Americans believe that the social power in each state should emanate directly from the people, but once that power is constituted, they do not, as it were, imagine it having any limits. They are prepared to grant that it has the right to do anything. So um, that's that. Uh, chapter three, how the sentiments of democratic peoples accord with their ideas to bring about a concentration of power. Um, his arguments here kind of ties to this, why, why you're going to get states and democracies that can do so much. Well, it, it goes back to an old, something that really Tocqueville's obsessed with throughout the book, and that is the, the fundamental weakness of the individual in democracies and that kind of anxiety, right, about status, about position, right? Again, when we contrast it to, as I've been talking about this series, when we contrast it with an aristocracy, you know, you're born a peasant or you're born an aristocrat or whatever, you, your position's pretty much stuck. There's not much you can do about it. And there's really no reason to be anxious, right? If you're a peasant and you're poor, well, you know, you were never going to be rich. It's, it's just your fate. So there's, in a democracy though, where there's this equality of conditions, if you're poor or rich, it's ba or you know it's based on your effort, or at least presumably you think it is. You think it's based on your your talent or your skill. So if you fail at something, it's your failure. It's not the system's fault, right? I, I do think that starts to change with like the Great Depression, um, but the fact that you know during the Great Depression you have maybe a change in view of charity, but also you have an expansion of state power as people said, we want the state to do things that it didn't do before. And the state did things that were unprecedented in American history. And Tocqueville would not be surprised by that because he, that's what he thinks happens. You know, the societies, people will then look to society. That, that's the point in this chapter. You know, when, you know, maybe in a primitive society, you, you, you help your fellow man. Uh, if they're in a crisis, right? You get together and build the house or whatever, or build the barn. You do the barn raising or whatever. That stuff might still exist in a democracy, but more and more you're going to get people then finding their security via the state, via via these, these free institutions. Another thing you're going to find in a democracy, he thinks, is kind of fear of special privileges or uh, special treatment. And so that's going to actually expand what 
what the state does. It, it sort of makes things more general. So if you pass uh, some, I mean, he, he's predicting here, I think, something like Social Security, right? Rather than uh, a policy where you just take all the, you, you kind of means test the poor, um, uh, you know, poor women and, and old elderly women and give them some kind of pension, but not other people, you know, or make a distinction between the deserving and the undeserving poor. Instead of that, you just create a blanket policy that everyone gets old age pensions. Right, or everyone gets unemployment insurance, or everyone gets a minimum wage or something, right? That's a way you avoid this image of special privilege. And it's hated so much in a democracy that you're going to get uh, uh, the growth in what he calls here kind of the general uniformity of, of government. Quote, that this hatred, immortal and increasingly inflamed, which animates democratic people against the most insignificant privileges, powerfully encourages the gradual concentration of all political rights in the hands of the sole representatives of the state. The sovereign being of necessary and incontestably above all citizens arouses no envy in any of them, and each one believes that any prerogative he concedes to the sovereign is one he has taken from his equals. And then he kind of just extends on this saying, what you're going to get in democratic societies is policies that are general and uniform compared to what you might have in an aristocratic society where everything is kind of special, specialized privileges. All right, chapter four. Now we're going to get, in chapter four, we're start, we're gonna, we, we get Tocqueville starting to talk more consciously about, about Europe and, and the democratization of European society and what it's going to mean because it's sort of, there's a big difference here because America was born, was essentially born free in his, his mind uh, due to the nature of the settlement and frontier culture and all that. That equality of conditions had always been there. Um, whether it is or not, I mean, we can debate that as, as historians, as social historians, but compared to Europe, I think it's a fair assessment. Um, but what's happening in Europe is a growing democratization, you know, due to the French Revolution and, and the revolutionary movements of, of the time he's writing, right? The revolutions of 1830 and eventually 1848, that kind of liberal, liberal nationalists and kind of uh, movements. What's it going to mean in an aristocratic culture that's coming to terms with democracy, right? And that's why chapter four is important for here. If you don't care about that question, you can kind of skip this stuff. But his point here is not all move to centralize the same way. That's uh, essentially his, his big idea in this chapter. Not every society will, will move the same way towards centralization. It may be the general tendency of democracies to centralize, but it's going to be different in different societies based on um, their, their situation. He writes, thus the democratic tendency that leaves men constantly to multiply the privileges of the state and to restrict the rights of individuals works with far greater speed and continuity in democratic nations than by virtue of their location and are subject to frequent major wars and whose existence can often be imperiled than is the case elsewhere. I've shown how fear of disorder and love of well-being imperceptibly lead democratic people to increase the prerogatives of central government and only power that seems to them sufficiently strong, sufficiently intelligent, and sufficiently stable to protect them from anarchy. I hardly need to add that any particular circumstances that tends to make the state of the democratic society more trouble or precarious will ex um, exacerbate this general instinct to make individuals more and more likely to sacrifice their rights for their tranquility. Hence, the people are never so disposed to increase the prerogatives of the central power as at the end of a long and bloody revolution, which after wresting property from the hands of the former possessor, shakes all belief and fills the nation with furious hatreds, opposing interests, and contrary factions. The public's taste for tranquility then becomes a blind passion, and citizens are likely to succumb to the very disorderly 
love of order. I mean, that's a really great uh, passage there at the end too, the disorderly love of order, um, you know, coming out of this kind of chaos of revolution and violence and war, you know, you get a greater call for centralization. Now, obviously, this doesn't seem to be the situation in America. He, he's not, he doesn't think the American people are particularly warlike. And there's not really a lot of history of war there to really talk about by 1840. You know, the Civil War, I wonder how that would have changed his view about some of these things. But in Europe, boy, howdy, you have the Napoleonic Wars and the French Revolution and all the different revolutions spreading throughout Europe at the time. So it's not, it's... His concern here seems to be the much more contentious European situation. So he's feared that democracy in Europe may be more likely to lead to greater centralization of power, which he, he actually he has quite a lot of fear for. He does have this anxiety about the tyranny of the majority. And he concludes this chapter by predicting that in a democracy that overthrows a monarchy, you may temporarily have you know anxiety about centralization just because of the experience of monarchy, but in the long term, out of this, you're going to get the same kind of centralization, maybe even more so in a, in a aristocratic culture. So chapter five is called How Sovereign Power is Increasing or in Today's European Nations is Increasing, Although Sovereigns Are Less Stable. I mean, this is almost self-evident by this point in the story that with democracy, you're going to get this, you know, greater state powers because that's what you expect, greater centralization of power, but not necessarily it's going to be the sovereign who's doing it, right? So you're going to get societies playing a larger role in consolidating sovereign power in European nations, not the sovereigns themselves. And my reading of this is the, these princes, where they still exist, obviously they still exi existed throughout Europe at the time. Um, even in France, it was restored, uh, the monarchy. But they become more adjuncts of society and agents of society, and that makes them... Uh, less sovereign. It makes them less powerful. It's really the society that's becoming more sovereign. The monarch, the sovereign, the prince, let's use the term the prince, is just a, you know, just the representative of, of, of the democracy, right? His position is contingent on, on respecting what's the, the demands coming from society. And basically his whole conclusion in this section is just that wave of democracy in, in Europe. The section ends. Um, I don't think there's a single country in Europe in which the development of equality was not preceded or followed by certain violent changes in the status of property and persons. And nearly all these changes were accompanied by considerable anarchy and license because they were carried out by the least disciplined portion of the nations against the most disciplined. From this emerged two contradictory tendencies that I pointed out above. In the heat of democratic revolution, the men who set about destroying the old aristocratic powers that opposed the revolution proved themselves to be animated by the great spirit of independence. But as the victory of equality moved towards completion, they little by little gave themselves up to the natural instincts engendered by that same, same that very same equality, and they reinforced and centralized social power. They wanted to be free in order to be equal, and as equality increasingly established itself with the aid of liberty, they made liberty more difficult for them. And this is, again, he, he's kind of repeating himself, but just that, that fear that democracy and equality is going to be a, a threat to, to liberty. You think that's happening in, in Europe. Um, right. It's actually the bulk of part four is, is chapter five. He's, he's really, also, really all about the European situation, really. Uh, then we have chapter six. Uh, what kind of despotism democratic nations have to fear? Well, I think we already know this. I think, you know, if you've, been paying attention to democracy in America, you really don't need to 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 read too much detail into it. Um, it's 
fewer checks on central power. There's no, you know, as as power just becomes a reflection of society, there's no society is not necessarily going to be the one opposing power, and that will just expand the power of of central authority. But then the question is, what would the, let's say this tyranny does emerge in democracy, some kind of despotism emerges, what would it look like? It wouldn't look like, uh, you know, aristocracy, you wouldn't see a monarchy necessarily returning. So he actually says this would be new. Uh, the type of tyranny you would see emerge in a democracy would be entirely new in the world. It would be, it would be fresh. It wouldn't just be a copying of old style, style tyrannies. Um, and here's some of the characteristics of that, according to Tocqueville. Um, quote, every day it makes men's use of his free will rarer and more futile. It circumscribes the actions of the will more narrowly and little by little robs each citizen of the use of his own facilities. Equality paved the way for all these things by preparing men to put up with them or even to look upon them as a boon. The sovereign, after taking individuals one by one in his powerful hands and kneading them to his liking, reaches out to embrace society as a whole. Over it, he spreads his fine mesh of uniform, minute and complex rules, through which not even the most original minds and most vigorous souls can poke their head above the crowd. He does not break men's wills, but softens, bends, and guides them. He seldom forces anyone to act, but constantly opposes action. He does not destroy things, but prevents them from coming into being. Rather than tyrannize, he inhibits, represses, saps, stifles, and stuffifies. And in the end, he reduces each nation to nothing but a flock of timid and industrious animals with the government as its shepherd. So this is the kind of servitude he predicts will happen in the democracy if there's sort of a despotism there. But it's merely a reflection of that same kind of middling banality and kind of uh, flatness of society. With society already being flattened, right, then it's... Now the foundation of this is the state that can do a lot, that is doing a lot because that's what the people demand of it. And once it can do a lot, then, you know, it, it can then move into molding that 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 those middling mores that that, that we've talked about um so i don't know um if if there's anything to that um perhaps there is uh it maybe you know it, it, it's you know it, there are there are examples of course in modern world history of democratic societies turning towards tyranny um that and these are tyrannies that did not reflect monarchy right so you can look at uh, maybe Russia is not a good example, but certainly Weimar Germany is one example, or or Japan after the Taisho Democratic period. Um, so, who knows? Um, but it's a, it's an interesting chapter if you want to kind of imagine, you know, even if you're like a science fiction fan, you kind of imagine what a kind of a dystopia might look like. The rules of a dystopia coming out of a democratic society, it might get inspiration for that. Um, now, chapter seven is just a continuation of the preceding chapters, and um, you know he's, this carries on with his kind of overall fear of despotism, and uh, and he lists several what he sees as, as dangerous tendencies in democratic cultures. Uh, three of um, well, two of them that are most important is kind of one is the the hostility of democracies to to forms and, and kind of rules. Right again. I, I think this this comes out of this idea that that in a democracy the state will do what society demands it to do. Rules, forms, um, be damned. He writes: uh, Men who live in democratic centuries do not readily comprehend the utility of forms. They harbor an instinctive disdain for them. 
I explain the reasons for this elsewhere. Forms arouse their contempt and even their hatred. Since they ordinarily aspire only to the fast sale and immediate pleasure, they hasten impetuously after the object of each of their desires. The slightest delay plunges them into despair. End quote. So they don't want any barrier to the achievement of what they, they want. And why is this dangerous in government? Well, democracy will just demand that their will is manifest, right? And you know, they're not going to care as much about constitutional barriers or something like that. And I, you know, there might be, you know, I think there's something to that argument. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing that we do choose from time to time not to be beholden to the founders and everything, right? Strict constructionism of the Constitution is kind of ridiculous, actually. Certainly, a lot of things that the Supreme Court deems constitutional are things that the founders did not intend or wouldn't have wanted, perhaps. Um, but, you know, maybe some things should have been worked out by constitutional amendment before being approved. Um, in some cases, that certainly is what happened. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter, right? You know, I mean, I mean think about it, like even think about this in war, right? The, when's the last time the United States declared war? I think it was against Japan, right? Maybe technically it was against Germany because that declaration of war came later. But, you know, that 1941 was the last time the United States declared war. It fought plenty of wars since then, right? But, I mean, that's an example of a form that just gets bypassed um, because it's not seen as useful anymore. But Tocqueville sees this as a danger. Another thing he sees as dangerous, and this is kind of connected to this, is kind of an overall disdain for rights and individual liberties. Um, you know, if, if a right is seen as important to them, they'll defend it, but they don't really respect rights in kind of an individual or, or a universal way, right? People respect freedom of speech when their speech is being curtailed, but in general, they don't maybe think much of that or, or have much concern about that or don't concern about it if it gets in the way of their their, the desires of society to see some things done. So chapter seven is, is kind of a long list of these different kind of anxieties he sees coming out of, out of democracy. So it kind of fits together with chapter, chapter six. Um, then we have chapter eight. Chapter eight is just his conclusion. It's called The General View of the Subject. And essentially it's a summary of, of the entire book. I read some of it in the opening of this, this episode. Um, but hopefully we have a good idea of Tocqueville's Democracy in America. Um, so that's it. Uh, so what's going to happen next? Uh, well, first, I, I, if you have any comments or thoughts about this book in general, my reading of it, my, my take on it, if I got anything really wrong, you think, please leave your comments below or send me an email, and I'll try to address those in future episodes. I, I once in a while get emails on the Philip K. Dick stuff, but not so much on uh, this mainline series. So if you do have anything you want to say about that, if you've read Tocqueville and have your opinions, please let me know. I'd love to, to learn more about, about Tocqueville and, and get exposure to different points of view about it. Um, but what's going to do next? Well, I'm going to continue looking at political writing for a little while. Um, and I'm not going to do, I'm just going to do one more writer, though, but it's going to be two volumes. Um, now, it's, it's, I think it'll be about 14 episodes, but we're going to do Abraham Lincoln. And the, the two volumes of Abraham Lincoln's writings are very good. They're some of the earliest political writing, I think, published by the Library of America. Uh, maybe after Jefferson, but they're in that first 50 volumes, I think. Um, incredibly a great anthology. Um, it, the volume one focuses on his early political career, but then particularly the, about half of it deals with the, with the 58 
Lincoln-Douglas debates, which are, we get both sides. So it's not just Lincoln, we actually get Douglas, Stephen Douglas's speeches. So um, that's going to be half of it. And then we got really the, the, the election of 1860 and, you know, the other, you know, and then we got the stuff during the war. Um, so we'll, we'll look at those. We'll look at some of his major writings and, and kind of go over his biography as well as we, as we read those works chronologically. So if you have those volumes, um, check them out. If you don't, you can find a lot of Lincoln's major writings, um, you know, online. Uh, the first episode will cover to 1844. Right, so it's, it's the period when he's first in public life uh, and local government, yeah. and not quite to when he ran for Congress yet. I think that'll be the next episode. So yeah, so if you do have, if you want to look at some of Lincoln's writings up through 1944, um, some of his letters to James Shield, his the, the so-called Rebecca letter, anything to Joshua Speed, his his friend, his great friend. Um, what else? His address to the Washington Temperance Society is a great one. Uh, some of his courtship letters are here too. Some of his feelings about the bank. Um, so, uh, just his period as a Whig politician, right? That's where we're going to start. So, I'm really looking forward to to sharing some of my thoughts and what I observe as I read through the, the works of Abraham Lincoln, and I bring this this springtime series on, on political thought to an end. So, thanks as always for. Uh, listening and taking part in this podcast. If you have any comments, please leave them below. But if not, I'll see you next time with uh, my first opening thoughts on right works of Abraham Lincoln. Baby, when you awake, you will discover old tip is a fake. Far from the battle, a war cry and drum. He sits in his cabin drinking bad rum.